0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products, and I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession, and 5.11 were founded on clothing, the tactical athlete. So They went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 5.11 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other the great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well. Their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, one 5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 348 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing. And this week, I'm so excited to bring you a very different episode with my good friends, Andrea and Daniel Shaw. So Andrea is a licensed addiction counselor and Daniel is a professional truck driver and trainer, but their journey separately, how they met, how they overcame their own personal challenges and made their marriage work, I think is invaluable to so many of us. So we discuss a host of topics from addiction to anger management to ownership of mistakes we've made in the past and how to grow from them. The parallels between the trucking industry and the first responder professions, whether it comes to sleep deprivation, nutrition, and mental health, and even the conditions they have to work during this COVID crisis that we're going through. So a great new perspective or two new perspectives than we hear many, many times on here. And I think you're really going to draw a lot from this. Before we get to this interview, like I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast and makes us more and more visible. And then this is a free library for you, the audience, to use individually, to use within your profession. All I ask in return is that you take a moment and share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Daniel and Andrea Shaw. Enjoy. So we are sitting here at Daniel and Andrea Shaw's home on the 5th of July. So we may not sound as energetic as if we'd record this on the 3rd of July. <laughs> A Little worse to wear from the party in. Um, but I want to start by saying thank you for having me and I'm looking forward to doing this. Thank yeah, you. We'll see, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So just for everyone listening, where are we where are we sitting right now?
1: We are sitting on our brand new deck with our pool in our backyard under the shade
2: north canton ohio in
1: north canton ohio
0: brilliant all right so what i want to do is walk kind of chronologically and then we'll get to the point where your guys lives intersect um so let's start with andrea where were you born and what was your family unit like what did your parents do and how many siblings
1: um i i was born here in canton ohio north canton ohio um I'm the oldest of three. I have two younger brothers. My mother worked for a bank her whole life, and my father had the midlife crisis of having to change his job at 40. Ironically, I'm 40 today. Uh, so he ended up becoming a corrections officer and auxiliary police officer at the age of 40. So, you know, we were lower middle class, uh, I went to school I graduated got my bachelor's degree and you know had had typical family nothing out of the ordinary and family around family was always important friends were always important and yeah
0: what when your dad transitioned to the different career did he enjoy it
1: uh, yeah, I mean, he, I think he took pride in it. I definitely saw a change in his attitude and his demeanor and his driving got better to an extent. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think he took pride in, in becoming a police officer and becoming a corrections officer and, you know, having that, that impact on society and, I remember (laughs) he was primping his uniform for the first time and my mom was in bed with a migraine and my dad's primping his uniform and I'm in the other room and I go, "Do I I swear I smell a pork product. Does it smell like bacon to you? And my mom just starts busting up laughing and she said, Andrea, I was worried that you didn't have a sense of humor and then you did that. (laughs) So I I sealed the deal with her for that. But no, I, I had a lot of respect for my father. He was a pretty impactful person in my life and who i am today and his unconditional regard for others has played into who i am and what i do yeah
0: so. we'll stay on that then so tell me about you know how old you were when you lost your dad i was 30 30 okay. yeah 10 years ago all right so prior to that um were there any things that you look back now especially being in the mental health field that you might consider were traumatic growing up or was it pretty idyllic overall?
1: No, I I had a pretty, I mean, I had a a nice upbringing. I had amazing friends. I mean, you know, the the three best friends I have in my life today were the three best friends I had in my life then and they're my sisters and um, other people came and went but they stayed and I was kind of the responsible mom of the group most of the time. So, you know, I was the scapegoat, apparently, a lot more than I thought I was. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, it was I didn't really experience anything significantly traumatic. My transition into mental health, I just knew because I was that person that everybody came to for feedback or advice or what do I do or how do I handle this? or And it it was natural for me. It wasn't anything I ever had to work at. I was just that person for everybody. And I'm like, hmm, you know, maybe I should do something with this someday. And when I did finally do something with it, it literally fell into my lap. I never, ever thought I would have been doing what I do right now.
0: All right. Well, before that, you know, when you were high school age, what were your career dreams then? Music teacher. Music. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, yeah, and then that's funny because you sang, well, we sang yeah. at our wedding, Surprise yeah. Becky. So yeah, she. I remember when we first met, she was saying what a great singer you were, and you were in all the all the parts at school and
1: yeah music was my passion that was what i did in school that's how i got out of having to do everything else was i was just a musician and a singer so um and it bonded me even closer to the people i have today so yeah it but then when it came to actually doing it professionally it it picked apart the love of my life and i couldn't i couldn't do that i couldn't spend all of my time focusing on picking apart music which i love and feel it's an emotional thing for me it's not mathematics mathematics mm-hmm. and i couldn't pick it apart like that anymore so
0: yeah yes i've had you know several friends who loved climbing mountaineering whatever it was and when they got a job doing it as a guide or you know whatever um career they they undertook it took away the love and so they had to basically step away and then not do it for a while before they could refine that love again so yeah I've, I've heard that and obviously there's like you know what you're doing now there's other careers you find okay this is what i'm supposed to do mm-hmm. as a job mm-hmm. but i mean i love martial arts but i would never become a teacher right for example
1: right so. it's not it, it takes your passion and it just makes it work and i didn't want my passion to be work
0: yeah all right well then let's move to daniel and we'll kind of bring him up to speed so what's up so <laughs> tell me um uh, Where you were born, and again, family dynamic. Your parents didn't have any siblings.
2: Um. Uh, let's see. I was born '76. Um. Out in the middle of uh, Northwest Ohio, out in the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> um. My my dad my dad was one of one of four, and then my mom only had just uh, her her brother her brother. Um, I have an older brother and a, and a younger sister. Brother's four years older than I, and my sister's two years. Um, we lived, lived on a farm. I mean, we didn't do any crops or anything. Uh, we had occasional livestock and, 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 and things like that. But, uh, we, uh, we really, we didn't have much. We didn't have much growing up. Um, we always had food. We always had clothes, uh, shoes, uh, they weren't the best clothes or the best shoes. So I always, always got made fun of for that. Um, uh, and it's basically just the opposite end of the spectrum from her idyllic childhood. Cause, uh, I, I'm, I'm the proverbial middle child. Um, I didn't get, taught anything by my father but was expected to do my brother was the one that they got all that attention and then my sister being the youngest and a girl of course she's the going to be the princess and get whatever she wants but you know um so i just got left alone to figure shit out on my own
0: well i know we're going to talk about you know like anger management and, and and that kind of area. So again looking back What do you attribute to some of the issues that you found later in life?
2: Lack of Emotional support in my family dynamic there wasn't any Wasn't any I love you's Daily I love you's there wasn't any oh, I'm worried about you. I'm proud of you Uh um, uh, the randoms, you know, I, I, later on in life, yeah, but, but, but growing up, um, uh, see, with adults that had children that grew up in the early 60s and stuff like that, there really wasn't that, uh, middle ground when it came to parenting. It was either hard nosed, children should be seen, not heard or that hippie crap where, you know, you tell your kid that, you know, you love them and stuff like that, so <laughs> so I got the uh my parents uh knew the difficult way I guess, but that's what they knew I mean, I don't think if they listen to this i don't think they know what kind of damage uh that 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 caused me later on in life
0: See, it's it's fascinating to me because i worked in a very wealthy summer camp in upstate new york for six years and these kids were i mean you know sons and daughters of names that a lot of people would recognize um and i had a counselor one year ty who actually was kind of the namesake of why i call my son ty and sadly a few years ago i I kind of tried to find him online and he passed away but he was a black guy from georgia who prior to this camp he'd worked in the inner city camps in in a very you know rough poor area and we would compare notes and, and we saw the same thing there were kids in the hood that had great homes that were happy you know functioning young kids and there were kids that grew up in these incredibly wealthy homes that went from boarding school to summer camp and back to boarding school that were exactly the same as you talk about and the power of that connection and that love you know it's not about affluence it's no, about attention not at all
2: not at all i mean i mean look at uh look at how unhappy um celebrities musicians are to the point where they're taking their own lives you yeah. know they have you know it, it, the uh uh being emotionally unhealthy doesn't care about your social or your economic status. Exactly. Well, walk me through then, you know,
0: I'm assuming the teenage years are probably when you started seeing, and if not before, but when, when did you start looking back now, unraveling from your earlier years?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I, put it, I put it right around when, and I had the, uh, got my driver's license had the freedom to go do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it um yeah I just I didn't have any friends growing up um
0: and why do you think that was
2: they just didn't like me mm-hmm. I was a child I didn't have my anger problems most of the times when I just I was different yeah but, you know, looking back, it's okay that I didn't fit in. It was hard then, you know, because some of us just aren't meant to fit in. And that's okay. But it's really rough when you're a kid and you don't have anybody to hang out with. Or when you do go hang out with them, all they do is make fun of you or, you know, throw crab apples at you until you cry and go home. Yeah. So then... um I started finding the people that I thought were my friends through um, starting to smoke weed and things like that. You know, oh, you know, these I, there were a couple of cool people, but they're only your friend when you got a you got a bag of weed and they don't.
0: Mm. <laughs> I find that even, even when, <laughs> when I was the first of my crew to drive. <laughs> I was popular as shit then. As soon as the other couple of the other guys starting right. to drive to had their own cars, the phone never rang again. So mm-hmm. I can
2: relate. And that 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 it just extrapolated into a lot of bad decisions. Um, I just started getting you know, developing re- deeper deeper relationships with uh, the wrong kind of people. Next thing you know, I've got you know quite a bit of product on hand, various products as well and uh yeah it, it was none of it was good um i ended up going to prison I ended up going to prison for uh, for breaking and entering and uh had to deal with that for quite a while but still um emotionally unhealthy um in my early early 20s And it it just, it started getting worse and worse the more I started getting into my adult life. Uh, Affecting relationships, you know, because I wasn't willing to uh, deal with my part in that. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe having no friends for such a long time, I just thought I wasn't meant to have them. So, it... Even if they wanted to, I would, I don't know, maybe push them away or just not follow through with, just not reciprocate. Yeah. So, and I mean, to this day, I I love a lot of people, but I could just walk away and be okay with it. Mm -hmm. It sucks that I'm that desensitized to it, you know?
0: Well, it's a trust thing, too. If you got hurt over and over again in your formative years, then there's always going to be a little voice in the back of your mind. It's even the same with, with my marriage, the first one that failed. Like, as head over heels as I am with Becky, I know there's that little part of me that if the same thing happened, I found out that she was unfaithful, which I don't think would ever happen with Becky. But I'm just saying, there's I I know there's that little piece that would be like, oh, well, yep. you know, I adore her. But yeah, that, that little Teflon piece that was developed from earlier you know trauma basically it's 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 kind of like you said it's always there
2: but meeting her is what made me want to be a better better man
0: well I want to get to that just just so that we can talk about the anger management Mm -hmm. with the the anger side Mm -hmm. how did you witness that manifest in those years those earlier years
2: lots of drugs lots of drugs Uh, meaningless um um, escapades with the females. That uh, was beautifully put, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Meaningless mean escapades. Me <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of drugs. All right.
0: Well, then let's get to to when you guys guys met. So back to Andrea, your perspective from seeing him the first time or connecting when you finally did
1: (laughs) so uh, i uh i met him through a friend i met of his on what was it aol messenger or something like that i don't even know we're an internet romance i guess but
0: (laughs) so becky and i yeah
1: (laughs) yeah so um i met him the same night and at the time it was really weird because i had recently gotten out of a relationship i had been in a four four or five year relationship with someone who was unfaithful to me and a lot of my self-esteem issues I didn't think I was beautiful I didn't really realize what I had in my heart versus what the outside looked like you know I was overweight my whole life that was always what it was so I was looking for ironically somebody who was bigger than me somebody who could protect me and I saw him and these huge freaking forearms he was sporting and he was just he just looked so tough he looked like he could protect me and and i knew and and i i did have that time too where i thought i could save people which was just completely naive of me to think could happen because there's no way i can save someone i can just be me and and hope that things follow suit but uh, yeah so we we ended up getting together and it was it was wonderful at first we were getting to know each other and getting to to be a part of each other's lives and then the what he was telling you about the anger and the drug use and everything became more of a problem as we progressed on. Um, I was not raised in an angry household I think, if my, I mean, it would, you know, if your father, if my father got mad, you saw it. That belt started coming off. You ran, you know. Um, but it was never to the extent of what I saw his parents do to him because I, I witnessed it. We lived with them for a short period of time, and I got to see how they would they would ridicule him and his siblings for mistakes, which is something that I am very opposed to. Do not punish people for a mistake, for an accident. Everything was punishable for them. So I saw that and I noticed that happening with us and the anger. And I mean, he would pick a fight everywhere and I was getting in the middle of it more than I ever thought I would. No, I mean, I I don't do that. That wasn't me. And I'm getting in the middle of him and some other big guy. Like, no, I actually got pushed, almost pushed down the stairs at one point because I was in the way of a fight that he had been involved in at a club. And I'm like, I'm like, this is nuts. You know, this is not my life. I don't do this. But, uh, you know, I loved him. And, you know, that was the other side of that coin is that I did love him and I was going to prove it no matter what. And, you know, we had... We had really good times, but that first seven years we had really bad times. Really bad. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. So, so what? What was the pivotal? I mean, that moment. But
2: she had enough, and uh, I left. Well, I left because I wasn't. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. You know. So I left. And we were separated, what? Four months. Four or five months. Yeah. And then I realized that I didn't want to live the rest of my life without her. So I had to do whatever it took to get her back and keep her. And that's where my, um, emotional health journey began yeah, it's, it's it's rough i mean i was still breaking remotes and
1: he would he would break our things like things that were valuable and things that weren't valuable
2: yeah i <sighs> it, and it never got physical between mm-hmm. us no. i would never i not once ever thought about raising my hand to her i would just take it out on inanimate objects And end up just costing us a few bucks to get another universal remote
1: (laughs) yeah so the thing about the thing about a codependent the thing about a codependent relationship is that you're walking on eggshells you don't want to ruffle feathers you want to keep the other person happy and not 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 caused the tidal wave for lack of a better term so walking on eggshells yeah I was walking on eggshells all the time all the time never failed um I and I honestly I don't know how I, I, I coped with it the best way I could keeping things going keeping things moving we would talk we would have real conversations every once in a while and things would be okay for a minute but then it would slip back which is what happens in that kind of a a relationship in that kind of a situation and um, yeah so after a while I, I had had Madison I had our first daughter and um, that was hard because I was basically doing it on my own because he would go to the bar and do whatever he wanted to do but then when I had when, when I when we got pregnant with Gwen which was actually intentional, when she was born moving up to when she was born um the last excellent time i remembered was the four or five days i was in the hospital really? yeah and from there i i i think a major part of my decision to move back here was because we weren't doing well and i pretty much told him i need to go home i'm going to take this maternity leave time we're moving home and i got i found a job and I moved the girls home. He, we weren't split up at that time. Now it was just he would come with us later. And, uh, <clears throat> but I needed my family because I had nothing over there. I mean, I had him and the girls, but I didn't have my family. And I just couldn't do it with his family anymore because of what, well, what I, we went I, through.
2: I couldn't, un- I couldn't understand that because I didn't need anybody. You know, I, I didn't need anybody around, so I'm like, why do you have to go so bad? You know. Well, no what,
0: what I was want to ask you as well when you first had um, Maddie. Yeah. <laughs> I see people that, you know, I mean, you're an incredible doting dad, so you no. ended up finding that. Yeah, finding that no. I'm going to stop the cycle. But then sadly, I see other people that don't. They replicate what they experienced in childhood. So. Uh
2: i've i've apologized to my kids for starting to raise them the way that i was being raised and it was just uh, um it was it was instinct it was just pure reaction that you know uh it was her job to take care of the kids
0: is that how it was in your household yeah
2: yeah it 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 was it was her job to take care of the apartment it was her job to take care of the kid and and uh it's it's not the way she is it's not how she's wired
1: well and the the whole time that this is happening I'm working full time going to school full time and raising a kid so it was it was like I I was asserting that and showing like no I am just as important as you are my work is just as important as you are I'm going to do this and plus my father instilled in me from a young age Andrea you will go to college pretty much told me you're going to school You have to go to school. You need an education. So that's uh, what it ended up being. Um, But we got here and my family got to see. They kind of already knew he had stuff going on with anger issues and things like that. They were already aware of that, but it came to light more. Um, being under my mom's roof and being exposed to it and uh, yeah uh, we had a I remember he overdrew our bank account because of three transactions and all I had ever asked him to do was share that information with me and let me know what he was doing so I could make sure everything was okay he didn't do that and uh, I remember I was so exhausted the one day Gwen had been screaming and I was so tired and I just needed a nap. I took her downstairs, put her in his arms, gave him the bottle and I said, I'm going to take a nap and turned around and walked away. And I would never do that. But I just I was so tired. And we split up. He went back. You went back home, I think. Yeah, for a little bit. For a little bit. Um, so he had. He had transition, and I don't want to negate the fact that I had transition too. It wasn't just a growing part for him, because I realized in that time things that I was doing. Um, being a codependent and enabling his behavior, that was my fault. I did that. Um, being a button pusher was my fault. Um, I was one for the longest time that thought to resolve an argument, you have to beat it to death.
0: I think you're not alone with that.
1: (laughs) Right. And I would chase him around and follow him when all he wanted was me to leave him alone. And in our time separated in the education I had from learning about, you know, because I was getting my master's degree around that time. I think it happened shortly thereafter. I realized, all right, I'm just as much to do with this as he is. I promoted his behavior. I kept it going by feeding and button pushing and having to have my needs met before his when he was just asking me to walk away for five minutes and let him breathe. Um, so I, I take that on myself, too. Um, but what I did learn in our separation time was that I'm I'm a fucking catch, for lack of a better term. I, I mean, I learned that like.
0: Well, I think that's it. Every, everyone needs to learn that. They go look in the mirror and be proud of who yeah. they
1: are. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a good mother. I'm a good wife. I'm a good friend. I'm a good daughter. I learned that and realized I'm, I'm not just beautiful as a person, but I'm beautiful as a person. And I, and I said, you know, you want to come back here. This is the way things are going to be. I'm not going to violate your moral code or anything like that, but here's the things we are and we are not going to do anymore. And I said, you will not bite my head off in front of family. You, we will walk away from each other and we will calm down and we will come back and talk about it like human beings. And I'll tell you, forgiveness is definitely a decision you have to make. Um, and it took me, it took me about three years, even being back together with him. It took me three years of active forgiveness to forgive him because it's hard to not bring up the bullshit of the past, you know, but I knew for us to recover from that I had to put that stuff down and I had to stop pointing fingers so even as I'm talking about this stuff today the things that he and I went through I'm not angry I'm not angry about it anymore I'm not I'm not feeling resentment towards him for it because that's who he was it's not who he is today so and I hope that he's been able to forgive me for not being able to back off when I should have and and being a part of that because I you know In a relationship, it it does take two. It wasn't just him. Yeah, he had anger issues. He had bullshit going on. But I didn't do anything to help that situation at first until I realized, wow, I need to back off. And I did. And I don't think we've had a major fight.
2: Long, long time.
1: Years.
0: Now, when you talked about chasing him, it kind of flashes me back to being bullied as a child getting crab apples thrown at you do mm-hmm. you think there's an element of that like wanting to be left alone is the the, the marital element of that kind of mirrors that bully element of childhood
2: kind of yeah. uh, I, I guess I guess it was probably more of the fact that I didn't know I didn't know any other way to deal with that situation than anger you know uh, yeah the, the the bullying and the uh, I, I fought a lot um, it, 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 it's hard it's hard to tell what the reason was because just just because there were there are multiple issues going on so to, I, I don't think I could pick just one I think it was everything come everything combined
0: all right. So, from your perspective, then those, you know, those forgiveness years. What was your journey like from the inside of your mind?
2: Um, I I got um, it wasn't bad for me. Um, just because I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say it. I mean, she was already an emotional person. She was already somebody that, um could deal with her emotions uh, in a healthy way. It was all new for me. So that's what I was concentrating on. It wasn't, um, um, it, every day was, what do I got to do to keep my wife? What do I have to do today to be better than I was yesterday? That's it.
0: So you in a sense, you're also learning new skills because I had you to, had, you had been imprinted with this one way of yeah. thinking.
2: I had to relearn everything. It's interesting.
1: And, and it, there's still slip ups every now and then. I mean, it's not something that's going to go away. And I catch myself sometimes like cleaning up his mess, which is another thing a codependent does is they clean up the mess. And I'm like, screw this. I'm not cleaning this mess up. Have at it. If you're going to throw a temper tantrum, you're going to clean up after your temper tantrum because I've already got two kids. You know, it's and, and so I had to stop doing that, too. I had to stop going around after he would destroy things or he would throw his his fits. And I had to stop picking everything up afterwards and let him have consequences from it. Um, but I think something that happened was that when he realized that he didn't have to hide his emotions anymore, a switch flipped for him um, when he realized he could talk to me and I wouldn't judge him for it he he was able to start talking to me
0: I'm trusting you too. and
1: re, yeah and realizing that he didn't have to explode or implode in order to get his needs met you know and he let me do the same thing I remember something that was a very common thing for him to do was if I would get mad he would get mad. Because he thought he was supposed to, so he would amp up with me, and I remember that one night we we had, we had to take care of my mother before she passed, and we we had the caregiver frustration, we were exhausted from taking care of her and and the one night I'm just I'm so angry, I'm just venting, and he starts amping up like it's his fault, and I'm like, "Hold on a minute. I said, "Am I allowed to be mad?" Well, yeah, I said. That's all I'm doing. So now, now I you're like, the one being chased. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not mad at you. I'm not. Ma- I'm mad at our situation. We're both in a really, really crappy situation. Can I just vent? And it was like, yeah. OK. So now, you know, we can we understand before we we get heated about anything, whether we say, look, this is at you Or this is, hey, I just need to vent because I had a shitty day. I don't expect you to do anything about it, but I just need someone to talk to. And that has cleared up so much for us, too. You know, because we can just kind of unload, you know, and and we can call each other on our shit now and not get angry with each other for it, you know, because he knows when I'm doing something or I know when he's doing something and we can say something about it, like, hey, what are you doing you know but yeah it's it's i'm learning how to set boundaries and say no to things that i used to think i had to say yes to all the time and he's learning to ask for things instead of take it and that that we can actually be a team and if i don't agree with something he'll listen to what i have to say and same vice versa sometimes it, no Jesus, whatever <laughs> and if if uh if he wants something we talk about it you know and and I can come to the realization all right you know okay you know so we come to it together now it's not some not us doing anything behind each other's back or anything like that
0: Well it's interesting as well cuz there was someone I forget who it was now um who was on the show recently and I believe it was one of my female guests and she was saying that they have, I forget how they put it, they put it so well and I, it pisses me off that I'm forgetting, but basically when they would come in, there'd be tension. It'd be like, is this a me thing or is this a them thing? Them being work, you know, my finances, whatever. So right. then if it was a me thing, all right, well then tell me what I'm doing and I'll, you know, we'll, we'll work through it. But you know, let's face it, 90% of arguments are because they're stressed about money. I mean, you know, Becky yeah. and I, that's, that I know when it's, she's just stressed in general. And mm-hmm. so it's like one of those electrical balls with a glass around it. You just touch it. You're going to get hit. Yeah. <laughs> Your hair's going to stand up. Yeah. And then vice versa. I'm not saying it's just hers. It's, it's, it's the same the other way. And I'm thinking a lot of first responders listen to this. No. When you come home from a shift, you know, I can think of one very clear thing. it wasn't a family member. It was a neighbor who came over and started giving me shit about my trash cans not being put away. Well, I was on shift for 24 hours, you know, and I wanted to spark him out right there on the bloody doorstep, you know. But, right. So but that wasn't. I wasn't at that code, you know, level red because of what he said, even though he's a giant prick. Actually he was a tiny little prick, but um <laughs> but it was the fact that I walked into the situation at level nine already. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean that's a very important thing to make. Well, and that's make. how
1: I approach everybody, especially you know, I'll, I'll ask him like, Hey, what's going on? Is this an us thing or is this a bad week thing? Or do you just need to vent? What's going on here? Because he knows I won't let him bring eggshells into this house anymore. And I won't bring eggshells into this house. When I come into this house, if I've got a problem with something, I need to deal with it. Um, I can't, I can't carry that into my house. Um, And if it's something that's lingering, if it's a need I feel I'm not being met with, I have to express that because even though we're good and we can read each other's minds a lot of the time, there's still things that we can't read, and we have to be open about it, and and be vulnerable to that because and vocal and vocal about it because we're not going to get our needs met, you know, by by keeping our mouths shut and being passive aggressive. Which is just ridiculous. I don't think I've been passive aggressive in years, like the cupboard slamming and the you know expecting you to know what I'm pissed off. Sometimes with the that like when I'm doing laundry and nobody's helping helping me, it's like, all right, come on, people.
0: It's hard to
2: fold clothes loudly though. It is though. Point. Yes, I
1: can't I can't fold clothes loudly, so uh. so that doesn't work. But well, and it doesn't help that I'm gone all week, too, right? So yeah, right. He's on the road all the time. And I have said, I did say, hey, you're coming home and you're treating this house like a holiday in here. What's going on? I need a little bit of help, you know, because he's sitting there playing video games all day and I'm the only one doing anything. And it's like, all right, dude, I I get it. You had a tough week. You're tired. But I work full time, too. I know I get to come home at night and I'm sorry that we're in that situation, but I need a little help when you're home, you know, and. And that, and that, you know, I'm not a diehard cleaner. My house doesn't have to be perfect, but, you know, every once in a while, just having a, a picked up house yeah. makes me feel a little bit better. So if I can get people to help me do that, okay, great. But other than that, you know, I wasn't born to clean and pay bills. I mean, that's...
0: Yeah, and that, that's very pertinent to people listening. I mean, we we get home after 24 hours and it's almost 48 hours. You know, you're exhausted, but, you know, especially for people with young kids, Mm-hmm. The woman or the the man, you know, the husband or the wife, whoever was at home, has been supporting the family as a single parent for 24 hours, 48 hours, you know, months if they're a military family. So when we get back, Mm -hmm. then, you know, yes, we need to have a decompression period. But then, yeah, we as as fathers and, you know, uh, husbands and wives need to then remember that we need to slide back into the household and, and do, you know, our share whatever sure. percentage that is.
1: Yeah. Well, and not only that, but don't be afraid to share. <laughs> you know, I mean, my father I found out later, my father would never tell me cuz he worked in a prison. He worked he was a police officer. He would never tell me what he saw and what he experienced on a day-to-day basis. He he told my brother, who actually was not mentally stable enough to handle it. Whereas here I am, I'm the therapist and I'm going to school to be a therapist. And I was actually working in corrections around the same time and he still wouldn't tell me. And I'm like, why won't you tell me these things? I was like, I'm not a fragile little kitten. I can handle it, you know? And I think we get scared to share what we've experienced throughout a day because we're afraid to share and harm other people. We don't want to vicariously traumatize others but in the same sense we need somebody to talk to we need somebody to unload on um and i can unload on him if i have to and he can unload on me and i'm not going to own it it's not mine it doesn't belong to me but at least i'm there
2: it's 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 either i do that it's it's either i i openly share or i just stuff it down and then it just comes out as anger and who do we take that bad day out on all the time? The cl- ones that are closest to us because we, we they, there's that comfort level with them Yeah, I know that I can snap at her and she's not going to, you know, she can take it or whatever. But she didn't have anything to do with it. So I just you just need to say, hey, I had a bad day. I'm angry. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's a punch bag in my garage. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> had a lot yeah. of ass kickings over yeah. the
2: years. It's, it's not, it's not her fault or, or, or my kid's fault that, you know, I, I, I had a bad week. And that's really difficult to do sometimes.
0: Well, flipping it completely. So, you know, the earlier in your relationship, you know, there was a lot of support from Andrea, you know, mm-hmm. as you guys were growing together. Well, Tell me now on the other side, you know, when, when she lost her father and then obviously later on lost her mother, how you found yourself having to be the pillar of strength for her to lean on. Um,
2: it, was, it was actually quite easy for me to do. Luckily, luckily, I had made enough progress emotionally to, to handle it. Um, I, I, I just did it. Mm -hmm. somebody needed somebody needed to step up uh for the family so i just i just did um um uh she's thanked me over and over and over but you know i just that's something that i i feel i needed to do i appreciate the thanks but i don't i don't need to thank you doing what what a man's supposed to be doing for his family, mm-hmm. and what about the
0: parenting side? So I, I meant to go back to oh, that. Sorry. So, so you, like you said, the first few years, yeah. you just instinctively didn't parent. Right. When, when did that shift for you?
2: Um, I I don't know. I don't know when. Um, let's see. They were still young. They were still young. So, Maddie probably maybe about ten. They were still. They were still real little. And it was just one day, I'm like, it just clicked. I'm like, oh my God. i I could be doing some serious damage to them in their future mm-hmm. if I keep this up. They which, could be. would seen firsthand. Yeah, because, because I know, it. I know that damage. Yeah. And I just hope that I stopped. I corrected my parenting, uh, uh, failures. <laughs> quick enough that I didn't damage them too much
0: yeah. well Andrea back to you um, you know having as, as you said in a pretty pretty great upbringing up to that point how how was losing your father and your mother you know, how, how were your coping mechanisms have not really been challenged that much up to that point
1: so when I lost my dad I mean, my father's death was a trauma. My father was killed in a car accident, ironically, by a drunk driver, which is what I... I'm an addiction therapist for a living. That's what I do. Um, But when I was... When I lost my father, I was active in my master's degree as well, where I was learning about boundaries and coping skills and all these things, so you know that those i mean the first 3 days after losing him are a blur i don't really remember what happened or what went on i don't i don't recall much um i really leaned on my family and friends um in that time because if i hadn't i probably wouldn't have made it so that would be one coping skill i i used my family and my friends as much as i could and i stopped caring what other people expected of me or wanted me to do and I did what I needed to do for my family meaning my mother and my my kids and my husband and my brothers that they were the nucleus and they were the ones I had to think about Um, but there was a lot of turmoil around losing my father you know you never think you're gonna lose someone like that you fear it you you know I had nightmares about it I never wanted to lose my parents and then all of a sudden my dad's not there anymore and um, I look back on it now it was 10 years ago and I just uh, you know I'm pissed some days because I miss him and I lost out on a lot of stuff but it made me do the best I could to cherish my mother and and my mother was uh, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's um, very soon after losing my father and then she lost her father the June after we lost our dad, and then she had to put her dog down. So when she was diagnosed with Parkinson's, unfortunately, it was like the last, uh, straw for her. And she, I think she gave up. I don't, I don't really know of any other way to say it. And we ended up being her caregiver. And I remember the day I made the decision because she couldn't walk anymore. And I said, yeah, that's it. You know, you're going to have to, we're going to have to keep you in bed. We're going to have to roll you. We're going to have to change you, all of these things. So, Taking care of her, Daniel did it When he went back to work Then I was working full time at a job Coming home working full time Taking care of my mother and my kids at the same time And I mean I'm not going to sugarcoat it It was hell It was the worst thing a child could ever have to do For their parent Um, But the most Honorable thing to do too Because I got to be the one there There weren't strangers taking care of her she was in her home. She had her grandchildren around her. She had her family that could come see her whenever they wanted to. Um, and when I lost her, though, I mean, I, I have to say, honestly, it was a relief. And a lot of people might scoff at me for saying that and, and call me a bad person for feeling relief that my mother was gone. But until you live every day... Uh, Taking care, you're tethered to your home because your mother is bed bound and you literally cannot do anything, be be it go out with family for more than an hour or two, even going to the grocery store is a fear because, you know, they're left home alone. My kids were a little bit younger, so they could be. But when she passed, I, I was relieved for her because my mother never wanted to be that way. But I was relieved for us because we hadn't been able to be a family in so long because yeah. we were taking care of her. But again, I wouldn't have wanted anybody else doing it.
0: Well, in her quality of life, I mean, I saw her obviously when I think she was bed bound the last time we were here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there shouldn't be a guilt because like you said, I think she, I don't know her very well. But from what you've been, you know, the, the storyline you've led us through, it sounds like she wanted to be back with you that
1: yeah she missed her family she missed her, her parents and you know and and that part of you I, I got a little jealous you know cause she got to see my dad before I did and, and I don't have any plans of going anywhere soon trust me but you know it's that I, I wish I wish I could pick up a phone and talk to him you know I just wish just one day that I could pick up a phone and just say hey I love you are you okay I know they're okay but just to actually hear that you know it's it's a big hole a big hole out of my life, but my children and my family, and your wife and my other two BFFs in the whole wide world. You know, <laughs> I mean, I they they they've saved me.
0: You've saved each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've watched you the last eight years. Is it
1: eight years, seven years, seven and a half years. Yeah, yeah. My, we're we're a family. I mean, you can't you can't possibly overcome that. And Daniel got to, and that was another culture shock for him. Because he actually got to see what it was like to have parents. I, I, I hate to put it so bluntly, no. but... Well, no, I had parents. I had
2: parents, just different style of parenting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But,
0: I mean, I think that's it. Is that there yeah. are different styles. Some will produce, you know, high-functioning members of society, and some parenting styles will produce some broken adults you know and it's not like you said it's not deliberate it doesn't set out no. to have kids and then break them no but especially if you're mirroring the parenting that you grew up with you know i think all of us need to look in the question i mean i'm constantly questioning everything i say to ty was that right you know if it was wrong i apologize to him sorry i shouldn't have actually done that you know and yeah i mean if if you're part of a generational domino effect that's in a headed in a negative direction then it's up to you the parent to, to change that to make a right or left turn
2: and i did mm-hmm. so it stops with me yeah
0: well i want to stay with you for a second i want to go back to the the counseling but seeing as you're facing the microphone um one of the things that i've seen is is the incredible um effect that uh joining the trucking industry has had on you so tell me about finding trucking and, and your experience behind the wheel. <clears throat> well,
2: we, um, we moved here. Like I had a really great job before we moved here. Um, uh, and I was there for a long time and then moved here and just never really could find my home. And then I slipped, I uh, fell, hurt my back, had to surgery, blah, blah, blah. And then as her mom, um, got diagnosed and needed more home care, I, I stepped in and, and started with that because I was already not working. And then, uh, we had to have a hard conversation about what are we going to do? Cause the, she's going to go soon. We, you know, we don't know when, but at some point. So it's so like, what do I want to do? So I went to truck driving school and I love it. I love it. So I've been, been with the same company two years. I'm the trainer now. Um, yeah, I wish I would have done it a lot sooner.
0: Now you talk we're just staying on the mental health element for for a moment. I'm very very aware that I think one of the the careers that's missed in the mental health world is a tow truck driver. Because they're always on these horrendous things that we see on the side of the road. They're the ones taking the the car with or without the person still in it. It's yeah. tragic if you ever see a car with a blue tarp over the top. There's probably a dead person inside it. Yeah,
2: um, I see it all the time.
0: Yeah, so so tell me about that in your industry. You know what what you see and you know it, what if any are there discussions talking about mental health in trucking?
2: None, none. Um, it's like my childhood. You know, just a bunch of gruff and tough high cholesterol having <laughs> <laughs> yeah, overweight truckers suck
1: it up and take it
2: you know stop being a little baby <laughs> you know so there, there isn't I'm bringing it to the industry um because it, it, if you can't process your emotions in a healthy way and you walk and you drive by one of these crashes where you may see it before they put that tarp on there, mm-hmm. some of that body, whatever's left of it still hanging out of the car. If you can't process that in a healthy way, that's just going to your blood pressure's going to start going up. You're going to take it out on your family, your loved ones. You're going to take it out on your dispatcher. Uh, you're going to take it out. Uh, maybe the next person you see at a truck stop.
1: Yeah. Well, and he'll call me. Um, he doesn't, if he does have a trauma situation or he has a bad day, like he had a really bad day, I remember over the winter. It wasn't a, an accident or anything that happened. It was just situations he had been put in and it was so bad. He just needed to talk to me. And we have that agreement. And I wanted to plug that in there real quick. Whether you're a truck driver, whether you're in the military coming home from a, a tour, whether you're, you know, a, a, a first responder, an emergency doctor, a, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, whatever it may be, talk to your significant other and say, look, here's some things I might need when I get home. Here's some things I might need you to do for me if you could, if you're willing. Here's my communication style. Because like, you know, they have the love languages, you know, where you, you determine what, how you like to be conveyed love. Well, we have communication styles, too. You need to know what my cues are. You need to know that if I come home and I'm quiet, I need a couple minutes. I just need to sit and be quiet. I We will talk. I promise I've made that agreement with you. But please don't hound me right now. My girls know some days I can't talk when I get home because I have been talking way too damn much already. And, uh, and, and some days, you know, he'll, he'll call me and I'm quiet and it's like, honey, I love you, but I'm just, I can't talk. I don't, I don't have it to talk right now because I'm still just trying to come down from what my day was like. And he'll have days where he's just so pissed off, frustrated, annoyed with people on the road you know, and he'll be like, I'm sorry, babe. I'm just, this is just, it's just chaotic out here. You know, and with when the COVID-19 thing happened, he was scared. We talked about it. When when the riots started, there was fear. We talked about it, you know. Um, but having that open line of communication and, and as a significant other, just saying, hey, look, I'm here for you. Whenever you're ready to talk, if you ever want to talk, I'm here if you don't want to talk to me, please find somebody you can. Um, because that's the main tool we have to cope with life, is each other. And if we're not utilizing that and we're not finding the right people to talk to, we're lucky. I can vent to him and he doesn't judge me, and vice versa. So it's having those people to call and talk to. And I think he is demonstrating that in the, the trucking field. And Well, there's...
2: um. We get treated like garbage out there. Mm-hmm. All of you guys listening, <laughs> thank a trucker. Yeah, I know some of them aren't very nice, <laughs> um, but it's not their fault. That's all they know. We get treated like garbage, especially especially with the whole COVID-19 thing. Um, a lot of most places have shut access down to um, uh, their public restrooms. So now we don't have access to running water a uh, proper way to, uh, wash our hands. Um, they just stick a hot porta, porta John out in the, out in the, um, out in the lot. And then that's what we have to use. Oh, so, okay. So we're in a pandemic where everybody's supposed to concentrate on being the healthiest that they possibly can be. And now I've got to go taking a, take a dump. And a hundred degree porta john that hasn't been serviced in two months. Plastic shit crock pot. Are are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's how, that's how we get treated. Uh, Mm -hmm. there's no, there's no healthy food options unless you take your own, unless you take, unless you, unless you stop at a Walmart or something or, or, and, and and take your own food. There's no healthy food options. They prey on us.
0: You see, it's funny because the, I've noticed this watching the last few months. You know, they're, they're hailing, the heroes, the frontline workers. Oh, you're our heroes. That's a really easy way to shrug any, any responsibility whatsoever. Oh, doctors and nurses and first responders and truck drivers and grocery store clerks. You're our heroes. That's it. Right. I'm going to walk away now. I've done yeah. my bit. Meanwhile, these men and women have to, you know, work longer hours, wonder if they're going to get, you know, a disease, um, work with the same skeleton crew that they're, City or council sliced and diced them to create, and now they've got to shoulder the burden of you know double shifts. And but that yeah, you're our heroes. Go out there and get it done. And the reality is, behind the scenes, is what you're
2: talking about. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, I it, my my uh, COVID nineteen anxiety got got to the point where I I I almost thought about quitting my job because I I had to turn off the news. I couldn't listen to any of the news. I I couldn't do any. It was to the point where I'm getting ready to leave for the week. And I'm frozen with fear and anxiety.
0: Well, turning off the news is is a lifestyle change everyone should do anyway. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. I had to. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the news. I want to get back to, to Andrew in a second. But while we're talking about trucking. Um you mentioned the healthy options that's something that you've managed to do very well so tell me about your nutrition choices as a trucker to avoid the often uh, impending morbid obesity that plagues a lot of that industry
2: Um what well, you you just you just have to plan ahead and therein lies uh, probably the, uh, most of the problem in people just just being lazy Um I I start off, I started, I, well, I take, I take a lot of water with me. I drink a lot of water. But, um, uh, during, during the day, during the day, I'm probably maybe two, 300 calories. Maybe starting with a, a small oatmeal in the morning and some healthy snacks, um, um, that are, that are right next to me throughout my day in case I get hungry. Um, plus with the water that helps curb my appetite. Uh, quite a bit, and then um, I want to have a, a, a decent meal when I park before I go to bed. But I keep that, it, I, I keep that around. I don't like to break eight hundred calories on my dinner, which is a lot. Yeah, eight hundred calories is a lot.
0: But you're paying attention though, right? Yeah, <laughs> without without like you know being meticulous about calorie counting, you're aware no. that you're not burning that many calories sitting right turning yeah. a steering
2: wheel yeah so, so you have I'm, to I'm i'm right around 1500 give or take a few calories a day yeah intake i have to because like you said i i'm sitting all i do is sit there all day yeah i mean uh it depends on my stops and things like that well how much i'm <clears throat> i'm getting out of the truck um i i do make regular stops just to stretch my legs could do a couple laps around the parking lot of a rest area or something just to
0: Get the blood flowing Get again. the, get
2: the mm-hmm. blood moving. I it's, do the
0: same thing just driving my car. I'll do yeah, exactly the I, same. If like the turnpike stops, I'll just literally do laps around the, the plaza.
2: So. so, yeah, I'm. I'm. hopefully hopefully, I can uh, get some kind of change to happen in the industry. But therein lies a bigger issue that there's so many people, <clears throat> there's so many giant companies, and there's so many people that benefit from having that, burger king at the at the ta mm-hmm. yeah it's never gonna go away yeah most most some most of the pilots they got rid of their donuts you know what they did they put a cinnabon in the middle of it instead i ah, gotcha this is like three times the calories of a <laughs> what? <donut>. what, what? <laughs> well, you don't have bakery items oh but we got a cinnabon now mm-hmm. i thought they were you know uh but most like loves they always have like uh these little fresh fruit cups like two for five bucks they're delicious
0: okay there you go yeah yeah brilliant all right well andrea just to kind of round off the main part of the conversation so tell me about your journey into becoming an addiction counselor
1: well like i said earlier i always knew that i was good with helping people and helping them solve their problems and things like that and initially like i had said i wanted to be a music education you know teacher and went to college for that and it didn't work out it was touch and go for a while um but i got into the human services field when i was 20 i worked with developmental disabilities and i i ended up finishing my degree in psychology well when the transition happened where i moved back home i got into a similar job here and i hated it I hated working in. I just realized that I just don't I didn't like working in that field anymore. It wasn't enjoyable for me. It's it's not that it's not a rewarding field. I just didn't like working in the field anymore. And I had to make a really quick decision to change and make it make a change. And Literally, I, I mean, I don't know how it came about. I, I found some classes I could take in substance abuse. So I was like, hmm, okay, I could get a job doing this quickly. I ended up working uh, at a detox in the county north of here. And um, I fell in love with it. Uh, I got licensed uh, as an addiction therapist. Uh, I, I had to have somebody sign off on me. It wasn't anything I could do independently yet, but... I made the decision I I just just working with these people and realizing and understanding I mean I'm not a judgmental person to begin with but the idea that an alcoholic or addict is a bad person is is false it's not real Um, there are good people that have an illness they're sick and when I saw that especially working in detox and seeing what my patients my clients were going through. Coming off of alcohol or coming off of heroin and and the pain that they were in not just physically but emotionally because You know whereas we might have coffee as a coping skill or nicotine as a coping skill Their brains actually tell them they're gonna die if they don't have that drug and so it's It's a it's a multitude of that. So I fell I fell hard for the the population. I um, I worked in the detox and I transitioned into corrections and I realized In the corrections aspect providing treatment there I realized that I could work with people who were very resistant very easily just because of my personality people responded very well to me they just you know I I leveled with them I I met them where they were at and they took they took fast to that and I and I decided all right well this is what I want to do this is what I want to keep doing so i went and got my master's degree um i got it in uh mental health counseling so I, ha- I have a dual license i'm a licensed professional clinical counselor and i'm also a licensed independent chemical dependency counselor so i've been doing group therapy for for 12 years Uh and i love it um group therapy is amazing it is They are watching people get well together and, and learn about their illness together and that they can't just pick up whenever they want because that first one may be their last one. Just watching them get better together. I mean, that's what, that's what recovery is about. I think, I think in anything, mental health, dealing with a trauma, um, just living life as a good human being you can't do it alone you have to do it with other people i wish (laughs) i've said i i said i wish everybody had a 12-step program because you know watching what a 12-step program can do for for my patients has been amazing and what it's done for me you know picking it up myself um it's a spiritual experience being a therapist and and being able to provide somebody with hope that they never had because their family never saw it in them or they didn't know how to deal with it because they were too close. And, and I can give them that dose of reality that they may not have had in a long time because they let me because they trust me. So I learned I learned not too long ago that I was the I was the tool to their recovery. It was me. It was my personality. It was things that came e- easy to me. I can't teach it. There's books that write it, but I can't. I can't write it out. I can't tell you how I do it. I just do it. You know, it just comes natural to me to do it. Um, and people respond to me and I respond to them because I look at them as a human being. Um, not as not as an addict or an alcoholic or a criminal or whatever they're being labeled as. I look at them as a human being and I say, OK, we have a problem. What what, what are we willing to do about it? And we go from there. I let them lead the way.
0: So with your experience with with so many years, what are some because I mean, every individual is different, everyone's personal, you know, history and life story is different. But what are some of the common denominators that you see that seem to reflect a greater chance of success overcoming addiction?
1: Well, I mean, when you're when you're dealing with addiction, you're dealing with Uh, A person using something outside of themselves to heal something that's broken on the inside now whether that is a trauma that they've experienced which is probably a vast majority of the situation whether it be trauma before the drug use started or trauma because of the drug use or Mm -hmm. alcohol use because being an addict is traumatizing period it's compounding the problem Uh, yeah it just it just compounds it um so you have to work on the part of the, the, you have to work on the human. You have to work on the, the person. And what can we give you that's going to give you some sense of joy that you didn't have before so that you're not looking for something outside of you to heal you so that you can find something within yourself to heal you. Um, that's why people coming together, that spiritual interaction, um, Getting to know other people, knowing you're not alone, you're not on an island, your thinking is not special or unique. Uh, one of the things I always joke about with my patients and I, they, they try to give me these stories about how hard they have it. And I said, you do realize you're not that special, right? And they laugh. Because they're like, yeah, okay, I get it. You're right. You know, your, your story's not that unique, you Listen know? Listen to this
0: bloody podcast. Some of the people, the horrendous shit that some of these right. people have been in that overcame it. And yeah. It, it, it recalibrates everything.
1: Yeah. it's You're not that special. I've heard worse, you know? Or... Or you think you're the only one with this problem? Let me introduce you to a couple more. Yeah. You know, let's get over your terminal uniqueness here right now because you are not unique. You are, and I will preface that I'll tell my patients like you are unique because you're a special human being, but your problems aren't unique. Traumas. Your traumas not unique, yeah. um, and and that shows you that that there's a pattern to addiction. And you know, even even when Daniel and I first got together, I mean. The, the behaviors that he would engage in and, you know, the drug use and the money and the dealing and all that stuff. He's using despite he's using despite me being eight months pregnant. He's using despite me being in labor. I mean, hmm. <laughs> who does that?
0: Well, even, you what, know, <laughs> when, he, when he said about hanging out with the kids that were smoking dope, it kind of hit me then like that, that group, the bad boys or, you know, whatever. Like actually, when you take a step back now, understanding mental health and addiction a little bit more as a forty-six-year-old, it makes you wonder: Well, is that the cool kids or are those the broken kids? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is that actually a giant red flag saying, "Hey, these are the kids that need our help the most"?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll, that's it. Absolutely, the red flag. they the, the, they're the first to
2: get ignored too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because they're
2: written off. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Because they're troublemakers or they're, they're difficult to talk to or whatever. Well, they're the ones who need the attention. Yeah. But, but I also don't want to negate that people who are doing well don't need it either because right. you could create problems if you start to ignore the ones that are doing well. I mean, we, we're, we need, Attention. We're we're human beings. We need to be paid attention to. But well, all, all humans need yeah. good nutrition. All humans need some
0: sort of fitness, and all humans need some sort of mental health. Yeah. No, not, not even counseling. Mental mental wellness. You know, uh, mechanism.
1: Yeah. Well, we need we need love. We need to know we're loved. We need to know that we matter somewhere. And, you know, when children aren't given that attention and and they're not encouraged to grow with what they're good at, they give up. Uh, we develop learned helplessness where we think, well, no matter what I do anyway, you're not going to care. So what does it matter? Why well, even try?
2: Which is what Daniel was talking about. Which earlier. is what. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and at what point did the genders get separated? Yeah. Emotionally. Men are only sp- the strong guy.
0: Well, I, I've talked about well, this a lot. Hollywood. No. I swear you know what to what God. Uh,
2: the women are the uh, the you know, we're, we're, we're both human. Yeah. We're different. Yeah. We're, we're, we're different genders. But we 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 all have the we all possess the the same innate abilities to nurture and love mm-hmm. and everything else. Is somewhere along the lines, uh, the, the genders got separated. The men aren't allowed to feel that stuff. The yin yang has lasted thousands of years for a you know, reason. and it, it, it's and it it's horrible.
0: It's horrible. Well, I talk about it. you look at the way we were we were raised yeah. and and the the role models the John Waynes, and I always throw John Wayne under the bus because from what I understand, he's a bit of a dick.
2: <laughs>
0: but, you know, but that, that, you know, Boys Don't Cry, Rub Some Dirt in It, Bullshit. Yeah. And I always put, and I forgive everyone that listens to a lot of the episodes because I talk about this all the time, but you watch Band of Brothers, the 101st Easy Company, yeah. the real men that talk at the beginning and the end of each one. Yeah. You see how how gentle their souls are, how compassionate they are, how broken they are. Thinking back to what they've seen, who they've lost—that's a man. That's some of the most heroic men that ever walked the face of the earth, Yeah. and they're in tears. That is what a man does. That is what a woman does.
2: Well, and it, it just—it we we aren't taught to feel these things, and then that's why most murderers are men, most suicides are men, school shooters. Yeah, the the worst people on our planet. They do the worst things are usually men because we don't know how to deal with our shit men. even warlords you think about it yeah yeah it's very true
0: actually i heard uh, sebastian junger in um his book tribe which is incredible he talks about um I he always refers to the iroquois tribe and i think if i've got this right and i apologize if it's the wrong tribe but he says they have a peacetime chief and a wartime chief the peacetime chief, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, often was a was a woman, because she would be great at communication, and you know, and and not uh, inflaming
2: oh, yeah. know, emotions. Yeah, but gotcha. then,
0: when it was time to go to war, then it was, I guess, the the harder style, you know, mm-hmm. often male figure that was like all right we're gonna fuck some shit up and get her back to (laughs) peacetime, and then she can come sit back down again that's awesome i like that it was the yin yang again you need both
1: of them you can't just have one right well and you know in my in my work in addiction you know i've had more men than women i i mean it is it is misrepresented um and the men You know, we've had to talk about stereotypes of what men are in society versus what women are in society and how damaging that is. And I'll tell them right there, it's bullshit. Like, when they tell you you can't cry, bullshit. When they tell you you can't share an emotion or be happy or joyful, bullshit. Tell a baby they can't cry. Exactly.
0: You know? know, It's it's what we do when we first come out out of the vagina. I mean, (laughs)
1: it's pretty... Natural. And, and these stereotypes of what men should be and what women should be are total bullshit. Um, yeah, do they work to some extent? Okay, fine. Utilize it that way. Utilize me as a compassionate, caring mediator because that's what I'm good at. But, you know, my best friends all are going to have different gifts and they're all female. They're not going to be good mediators like I am or, or be able to, to, um, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, manage finances like someone else can. And I can't, you know, I mean, these are, utilize us for what we're good at. Don't tell me because I'm a woman, I'm automatically going to be emotional. And that if I do express a boundary and I do stand up to you because you're being an ass, then I'm not a bitch, yeah. you know? So it, it, we have to squash those stereotypes too, because... Th- that was a part of what he was raised on, you know, that a man does these things and they take care of, they bring home the bacon, as you call it, and and that's all. And we don't have emotions and suck it up, buttercup. Well, it, you know, it doesn't work anymore. No. Well, it's I mean, causing illness.
0: You know, well, it's causing my profession you know, and all the professions that are, you know, the tactical professions. It works great. It works in causing suicide uh-huh you know bottle that shit up and then you know to the point where your mind is so scrambled that you think you're a burden to everyone around you and you go stick a gun in your mouth mm-hmm. so yeah if you want to you know reduce the population carry on but if you actually want to create an environment where men and women can thrive then you need to do the polar opposite of what we were sold in the 70s and 80s which mm-hmm. was you know like you said rub some dirt in it suck yeah. it up
1: traditional so. households don't really work anymore no not unless it's a choice. I mean, I can't tell you I don't want to be a stay-at-home mom some days of children who are fully functional and can take care of themselves just because I'm tired. Well,
2: they didn't, they didn't work then.
1: Yeah.
2: It's just nobody cared enough to want to fix it. Yeah. Because that's just the way it is.
0: We know what's crazy as well, and I, I talk about this quite a lot. Look at World War II. Again, l- the women, because there was still that kind of gender... Um, Perception, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Or inequality of perception. But when the men went off to actually physically fight, the women stepped into all the traditionally male roles and worked in the factories.
2: And you know, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't. No, we lost the war. Yeah, we wouldn't have done so well.
0: But then it blows my mind because then fast forward to the fifties, the forties. These men were fighting side by side. You know, even though they may not have been completely integrated, there were. Men and women of all colors and creeds fighting this, you know, one particular horrendous, you know, force that was the Nazi party. And, uh, you know, the Japanese, obviously, at that point. And then a few years later, we're back in America hanging black people from trees and women are supposed to stay in the kitchen. I, I don't understand that <laughs> transition. Like, yeah, How do we go from rolling up your sleeves and, you know, women doing yeah. all these male roles to 1950s Pleasantville? Mm-hmm. I, it blow, I, I'd love to go in a time machine and work out how the Fuck that that happened because that is, I mean the complete opposite. I mean, we should have come back from World War Two and been like, wow, well, gender clearly is not what we thought it was, and have this totally different thing. And we we fought alongside Sikhs and Muslims and
2: instead of it got worse.
0: It. Yeah, and it, it did the complete opposite, and it blows my mind how that yeah, happened. I
2: don't, I don't, I don't get it either, man. Yeah,
0: and I haven't had anyone that's been able to explain it yet in, in four know. years. <laughs> so.
2: yeah, good luck.
0: Well, Andrew, I want to touch on one more point, and then we'll go to some wrap up questions, but. I had Chris Bell on the show um probably a year ago now and he talked about his positive experience getting off opiates with Kratom and I have heard two sides of this so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's not an absolute but I wanted to give you the platform to talk about the, the bad side of Kratom just so that that story is told you know, with both sides
1: So, I guess I'll put it this way because I was thinking about it I currently work in a in a in an office that utilizes uh, medication assisted therapy so suboxone all right it's a controlled substance that is that is prescribed by doctors and monitored by physicians monitored by you know me overseeing making sure patients are going to counseling that they have sober supports in line all right so it's a controlled substance kratom has I don't know specifics. I just know my experience and that's all I'm speaking on here. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I don't, I don't have that, but I do know we've had to detox people from Kratom because it has similar effects to opiates. Um, it's just another one of those situations that it, you know, people from what I understand are buying it overseas or they're buying it from, the the local you know developer whatever and it's not controlled you don't know what's in it you don't know what's happening with it and people are using it and they're finding out that they can't not use it similar to, to opiates similar to heroin similar to alcohol you know i mean they're finding that they can't not use it and that's a problem um, because they're ending up going through the same illness that that they would if they were in withdrawal from Percocet or heroin. Um, we have, you know, in in the system I work in, they've brought people in to detox them from kratom. I mean, it, it it has withdrawal symptoms. Now, do I do I know if people can function effectively? I mean, in the experience I've had with people seeking help with it they were not functioning effectively they were they were starting to experience the severe consequences of of substance abuse and so that's what i've seen to be true you know but plenty of people could argue that suboxone is very similar and that's why i brought up that example in the beginning i'm not denying this but the big situation and difference here is is that we're learning that kratom has a similar response to an opiate but the suboxone is being controlled.
0: Yeah. Well, that is a very important. <laughs> Kratom's point. not. Yeah. Kratom is not
1: controlled. It yeah. is. It is a substance that is not being monitored, and it it is showing to have similar problems. Uh, is it? Ro- I don't know. I can't. I can't speak on that. I just know that. We need to watch out for it. It's not. It's not something that I would go walk into and say, "Yeah, this is great. I'm healed." No, you're not. You're still using an opiate. It's still affecting the same receptors in your brain. Because if you stop using it, do you get sick? And you know, if the answer is yes, then okay, there might be a problem here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see. I see. Definitely see the application. You know, if you find a trusted source, um, if it reduces the facts of of the uh, the likelihood of an overdose, if you can't have respiratory compromise from kratom. And I don't know if that's even the case, but if you can't, then it's safer than fentanyl. It's safer than some of these things that are killing our know, people out there. However, you've also got to look at it like if you are filling a void and you switch products, mm-hmm. you still haven't addressed the underlying issue. Right.
1: The, the The problem is still there. And what I've watched happen with Suboxone is that. Yes. Patients are taking a substance, but they're helping to shut down that part of the brain that says, if you don't use, you're going to die. It's shutting down the cravings. It's shutting down the the tunnel vision that happens with substance abuse, with substance dependence, which is the problem that we're trying to address so that we can start working on the as one of my physician uh acquaintance that says starts to work on the frontal lobe which is the part of the brain that has our that has our ability to fight these things has our ability to build up spirituality and and Mm -hmm. and coping skills and knowledge on how to handle the disease in an effective way so sometimes you do need a little help to shut that thing up because it's dangerous and it's going to kill us if we let it run wild um and, and I think that's the benefit of doing it in a controlled environment and having physicians monitoring and stuff like that. Can meds like these be abused? Yes. I've seen them abused. I'm not saying they are not. Um, is it a, is it a substance to fill a void? Yes. But it's a substance to fill a void temporarily so that we can work on the real problem because you're not going to be able to work on what happened in your past if you're having a craving. It's just not going to happen.
0: Yeah. That's why I'm such a huge advocate for CBD because that, when you look at the the physiology, and they only discovered the cannabinoid system in the 90s, so it's a it's a kind of revelation in the medical world. But you're just bolstering the pillars of health in the body. You're not filling a void. But let's say, for example, you use because of your anxiety. Well, as you've seen with Becky, she takes CBD now. She's Freaking flatline. She's in a good way. She's super level. So now you you're in a better mindset. You can start addressing the things that are causing the anxiety. Right. So that's a tool to use. But that's not creating a high for escapism. That's just laying a foundation for you to then build on and address the nucleus of what your issue
1: is. Yeah. I mean, uh, and and I'm I I tell people I'm Switzerland when it comes to CBD and things like that. I understand there's benefit to it. But again, it comes back to in my mind. You have to work on the problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A, a well, substance exactly. is not going to heal this situation. You have to work on whatever the problem is. Yeah, whether it is a, a trauma, whether it is, um, I mean, whether it is neglect, whether it is whatever it is, you have to work on that stuff. You can't, you can't fix a problem with another problem. It just doesn't work. No, well,
0: that's what I find with CBD. Like a perfect example, a friend of mine's reached out to get some for his mother who was experiencing hip pain to the point where she couldn't get out of bed anymore. And I just you know, sent him the link and didn't even think about it. He called me two months later. He's like, James, she's not only out of bed, she's attending PT now. <sighs> so that's the thing. It's not like, okay, just take CBD forever. No, it's that got her to the point where she could truly address the underlying muscle imbalances that were causing her hip pain. So that's what I love about it. It's never a, a magic pill. It's, it's, it's a board that you can walk across that will then get you to where you need to go, but that you know, in in the the mental field, if you're anxious, well, now if it calms your nervous system a bit, you can start addressing what's going on. But if you're in a state of anxiety, you're not going to be able to process anything. You're too right. busy freaking out. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's it's a great tool, but brilliant. But well, I want to transition. We've been chatting for an hour and a half now, so. The first uh, closing question I love to ask: Is there a book that you love? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. I'll, I'll take you one at a time.
2: Um, I'll, I'll go because uh, I don't. I don't like to read. Um, uh, <laughs> so uh, Howard Stern comes again. Phenomenal book. Uh, he breaks down his interviews. Um, uh, he gets uh, he gets a lot of uh, a bad press from from people that don't know have, have haven't really been howard fans for for a long time like i have but uh yeah it's, it's what i'm reading now
0: i think a lot of people attribute the birth of podcasting to Howard Stern really
2: probably the interview style yeah, he, where he's, he's a genius shackle me he's a pioneer a radio pioneer man mm-hmm. he's the radio god he's awesome
0: brilliant andrew the same question mm
1: well i do read a lot but typically my reading is to escape reality so i guess i'm using a substance outside of myself to cope with life
2: Well, i don't think that's a
1: bad
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a positive thing but, but so yeah i mean you can talk about your fiction what's, what's some of your favorite writers uh,
1: well i mean i first of all i love audible it is the shout out um i love listening especially when the narrators are wonderful um and I don't read really much that's related to reality because I live reality too much. So I just like to escape. Um, I like books by uh, Shane Silver's. I like books by um, oh gosh, I'm totally drawing a blank. Uh, S. B. Nova, Sarah J. Mass—they're all just fantasy, fun, keep me in the in a different world, but one that's close to my heart James that you and I have talked about before is you know dreamland Um, just to go back to what what we've talked about today um, getting to see the author speak at the opiate conference here in Ohio was I was awestruck Um, the work he did just to understand and uncover uh, the pill mills and the the dealing and where the drugs that come to Ohio were coming from you know it's He's a fascinating person to read. And of course, um, you know, uh, the big book is a wonderful book and the N.A. text and the language of letting go. um, All of those books that support the recovery efforts that that people struggling with addiction, substance abuse deal with every day.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, Sam Quinones, like I forget, I was looking for my phone so I could Google it quickly, but um he was on probably double digits like earlier on in the podcast, and then Johan Hari, as we discussed, is another one. If people want to really learn about addiction, you know, aside from this episode, then that those two are are incredible. But yeah, very different kind of perspectives too. One just chronicles those parallel things of the pill mills and then the Mexican cartels that are bringing. Um, black tar heroin in and then Johan looks totally at the uh, the mental health side so mm-hmm. yeah brilliant alright we'll stay on you for a second what about a movie mmm
1: movies my favorite movies oh geez I mean they extend from horror to Disney I don't I find Disney the same as horror <laughs> <laughs> why does somebody
2: gotta die oh, I know it's a kids movie <sighs>
1: Uh you know I like movies again that trick me and make me think. Um I like I, in general I like watching a movie for the first time because that's an emotional experience that you probably will never have again unless you're lucky like me where the first time I watched signs it care, scared the crap out of me and then the second time I watched it it scared the crap out of me again so that was a treat but um you know I'm I'm again I'm more into the the fantasy take me away lovey-dovey not a documentary watcher although some will catch me every once in a while but just you know a way to escape um and and just kind of fall into something fall into a story and think wow people have the minds to come up with this stuff because some of this stuff it's like really (laughs)
0: lord of the rings well lord of
1: the rings harry potter you know looking at the oh avatar there would be one that's at the top of my list. I'm ready for the next ones to come out. Like they should have come out at this year, but yeah, So well, I just
0: I heard having the inside, you know, kind of voice now being back in the stunt industry. They built a whole Avatar land in mm-hmm. Disney. I know I need the, to visit right when I was there. Um and I was kinda like, well, That's kinda weird. This old film now, you know, it was it was kinda meh. Well apparently there's like Four thousand more movies they're making yes. now because it's all CGI. So yes. there's going to be an Avatar landslide in the next few years. Yes, I, I know.
1: And bring it because I'm ready.
2: <laughs> so, all right, Daniel. Same question, movie. Oh, movie, uh, war and comedy. Um, but war movies can't be some cheesy crap. You know. But. Did you
0: watch the most recent Rambo? Yes. I, it you. was everything I wanted it to be. I could never get that ninety minutes back. I <laughs> it's gone.
2: <laughs> I, I knew it. I knew it was going to be ridiculous. I you know my my expectations going into it were very very low, and they exceeded my expectations. <laughs> yeah, I, it was everything I wanted a Rambo movie to be. Yeah, gratuitous violence, uh-huh. uh, you know, and a and a very very tiny Sylvester Stallone. Yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, comedy, uh, uh, Step Brothers. I I I probably quote that movie all the time, every day, every day.
1: All
0: yes, time. yes. We just watched yes. the um, Will Ferrell, the Netflix one they did on the Eurovision Song Contest. I think it's called Eurovision. Yeah, yeah. I haven't oh just watched it. Oh my god,
2: because
0: yeah. I grew up with you know watching that. It's a very yeah. British thing, and we had. Bucks Fizz Which was this You know One British band That won
2: one year And obviously ABBA Came through there But And as I'm contractually bloody- Required to mention Powerade at every grace <laughs> We look forward To the release Of Mystic Mountain Blueberry <laughs>
1: <laughs> See Yep See no, I put up That's with a firehouse <laughs> you go to the firehouse they, They're Jeez. quoting Movie quotes
0: all day uh, That's what we call A firehouse movie
1: That's how they talk To each other All the time <laughs> All the time
0: all right, so the uh the next question I'd love to ask is there a person you recommend to come on the podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of planet
2: Earth and beyond. Um I don't I don't know the guy, but um uh Trent Shelton in Texas. Yes, that guy his heart is huge.
0: I need to reach out to him. I follow him on, on social yeah, media. Yeah,
2: that guy. He is an amazing man, and he, he's doing a lot of good for uh, our our uh, society. Was he ex NFL? I I don't know. His I want to say I don't, I don't know if he know had a football background or not, but, but um, but yeah, he's super intelligent, and yeah, I I think he'd be perfect. Brilliant, Andrea. Same question.
1: Well, you've asked me this before, and I've answered it before, and she'll probably hate me for actually putting it on the podcast, but... Uh, Tough shit. <laughs> right? <laughs> Dr. Nicole Labor. She's the addiction... She's an addiction physician in Ohio, and uh, she's the one who has initiated a lot of my belief system about the disease of addiction and how it operates, and she's just a cool chick. I I adore her. Um, very down-to-earth, a human which is nice to have in the medical field, so uh, I definitely recommend her. I think she'd be a wonderful uh, podcast interviewee.
0: Brilliant! But you mentioned that she's got the video, so I have to make yes, sure. Yes, I, I you need that. to watch the video. Okay, all right, staying on you. So this is more more pertinent for you, I think. What do you do to decompress? And reason why I ask, why I underline that is, I find a lot of the people who take on trauma, you know, especially in the counselling world. It's very important that they offload that trauma and don't end up burdening themselves. So how do you decompress?
1: So you and I had talked earlier about how you get desensitized to things. Things don't really bother me anymore. It takes a lot to bother me. Um, in the beginning, my decompression happened by talking about it. I would go to my, my mentors or, or my supervisors and say, hey, I had a tough case. Can I talk this through with you? And, and by talking it out and helping understand my part in it and things like that, um, that's ultimately how I do it. Uh, today, I'm, I've learned I'm very much an introverted extrovert. <laughs> Whereas if you get me around a lot of people, I'm very outgoing and I'm very ready to go. But when I'm home, leave me alone. Um, I want to be with my kids and my husband, but when I'm home, I want to be left alone. I want, I want to watch my movie, my watch, binge my shows or listening, listen to my audio books, play games. I just want to be quiet, which is, is weird for me. Nobody would ever have thought I wanted to do that, but I think that's my mother coming out in me is I don't mind being alone. Yeah. Well, you spend all day
0: talking to people too, so.
1: So, so having that quiet time is okay, you know. As long as if you're, it, as long as your quiet time is spent doing something intentionally and not spent in your head beating yourself o- up over something that you don't have any control over.
0: Love that, brilliant. Same question to you, Daniel. Decompress. Decompress. I mean, other than masturbation. Well, I mean, you can include that in the list. <laughs> okay, but I would say uh-huh. for
2: all the men listening out there, it's <laughs> probably a given. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just, just checking. Just checking. Um, you might want to try it if you're not. Um, no, I, uh, my wife's awesome. Uh, we've been together for what, 20 years now. We've grown, uh, together really, really well. So if I need to decompress, I can just give her a call. Um, if she's not available, um, crying. Absolutely. I have to. Mm hmm if i i i I, i've i've pulled off you know use the restroom and just just take five minutes let it out i challenge anyone to keep crying it's impossible once once you're
0: done the body's like all right
2: yeah now it's it's time to move on Mm so refreshing Mm -hmm. but you know you just can't stay there that long i you know okay i'm feeling this so feel it own it do get your cry out move on Mm Mm-hmm no different than anger if if you're angry go
0: run or punch punch something that's supposed to be punched right that's (laughs) not a wall that's the alternative and
2: I I, I can't do that yeah but yeah crying talking to her and rubbing one out brilliant yeah
0: (sighs) that's a great list so it's a great list (laughs) <laughs> especially for a trucker. that's surprising. <laughs> One of the 70 strip clubs on the route. <laughs> oh,
2: oh yeah, there's there's a couple of my favorite ones. Uh, uh, they're right next door to each other. One's called uh, Hepatitis B and mm. Hepatitis C. They're oh, uh, yeah. they very fun. lovely looking clubs. <laughs> Is that between the the peti- penicillin highway? They're actually right next to the pilot so you can go <laughs> you can go get get a cream if you need to. If oh yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, just very quickly then, if people want to reach out to either of you, how do they find you on the Internet?
2: Um, I just got Facebook. I mean, I dabble in uh, on Snapchat, stuff like that. Um Just Facebook, uh, Dan Shaw, D-A-N-S-H-A-U-L-L at Gmail. Hit me up with an email or something. Yeah.
1: Brilliant um and mine's andrea Shaw a-n-d-r-e-a dot shawl s-h-a-u-l-l at gmail.com and i'm on facebook too so Perfect. all
0: right well i want to say thank you this was this was fun like i said i think we finally found a way out of the fog from yesterday's party right but, yeah, yeah but i mean it was just such an interesting dynamic excuse me an interesting dynamic and when we first talked about this you know your your road's very different you know your are you're yeah. The way you were raised and then the intersection and, and where you are now. Um, yeah, it's it's been great. So thank you for having the courage to tell your story and being yeah. tr- so transparent. Can I, can I
2: say one more thing? Please. Go. Listen, um, perception versus reality. It's, it's totally different. Um, so I grew up. There was three of us. Um, the perception is that we all had the same childhood. The reality is they were completely different. Um so those of you that have uh multiple siblings just do an experiment have a conversation with them about their rela- their reality of the way you guys grew up versus your perception of how they grew up. Um if you don't have any uh, any siblings do it with your neighbors because I can guarantee you the, the, these first four houses that I'm looking at right now, same street, same beautiful neighborhood. The perception is everybody's having a great time, but the reality is you have four different realities Yeah. right next door to each other. So have a conversation with them, sit down with them, talk to them about their reality and not your perception.
0: Brilliant, it's a great way to end. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Woo-hoo.
2: Love you, buddy.